0: Hey, good morning. Um, in honor of it being a Friday, it's probably going to be a bit of a short class today. Uh, we'll be continuing with what we talked about with paints and showing a few examples in art and sort of pa- t- painting and looking at the color pigment history through art. And then I'll give you a quick preview at the end of what we're going to talk about next week. One of the things we're going to talk about next week is Color in glass, which can be extremely beautiful to look at, just the way that light, as a medium, glass is really flexible. It allows you to play with the refractive index of how light changes, and you'll see some amazing color artworks created in glass by a famous artist named uh, Dale Chihuly. You may be familiar with this artist. He did, at one point, several years ago, have uh, an exhibition at the Gardner Ceramics Museum, but he has a permanent museum all for his own work in Seattle, uh, which I had the opportunity to visit in October. It's, it is absolutely amazing. If you go to Seattle, definitely stop at the Dale Chihuly Museum. Even if you're not much of an art lover, it is out of this world. It was one of the highlights of the trip. And it's right by the Space Needle, too, so it's really easy to, to do the touristy things. Yes. Sure. Okay, so that is a good question, and in terms of a strike, if there is a strike, classes will... So I don't want you to have to fight through picket lines and and such things, but it would be a CUPE strike if there is a strike. I am not CUPE, I am actually UFA, so I would be continuing to teach during a strike. Um, What I will do during the strike is I will certainly send out, if there is one, I will send out announcements. We'll see how it's going. If it's really, really difficult for you to get onto campus, obviously I don't want to put you through that. So what we might do instead is have like an online class where I would do it online with a little bit of video um, including the slides as usual. So um, we'll have to see how that goes. (laughs) Strikes are are really unfortunate for you, for the students, because everything gets delayed. my TAs may not be working, but I will be. So I'll try to not delay that as much as possible for you. Kay. Okay, so let's start today. So on the agenda, as usual, we'll have a quick review of some of the things that we did last class. Um, I'm just going to put up a list quickly. So while you're working on your die essay and die assignment essay, Um, Just to remind you, all the different, the four types of classifications of dyes, we had the natural, organic, natural, inorganic, synthetic, organic, synthetic, inorganic, just with a few common names. So if you haven't decided yet on a dye that you're going to do, maybe you'll get some ideas from this. Uh, After that, we'll just do a super, super quick review of redox reactions. As I said last class, redox reactions are really important with color. Uh, They're important because especially with the dyeing process and even with the paint process, so much of the change in color that happens in chemicals is due to this idea of a redox reaction, is due to the gaining or the losing of an electron. Um, You don't need to know the specifics and you don't need to know in depth how to go into the chemical formulas, but as long as you're aware of what it is, uh, it's, it's informative for you to understand that this is the basis of a lot of color change reactions. New material today will be uh, a little bit further into paint. We did a really quick overview last time of some different types of paints, and today we're going to give paint the same treatment that we gave dyes and light and color. We'll go into the definition and look at some of the properties of paint as well. Uh, look at the different paint types in detail and also give you some examples from art the art piece will be important because we'll look through painting and you'll see how sort of human beings have expressed color throughout the ages and you can really trace the synthetic sort of depiction of color through art itself and see how humans became more and more skilled at creating interesting pigments and materials to express color. And finally, one of my favorite paints, glow-in-the-dark and UV paints. You've probably seen these if you ever had those sort of adhesive stars in your bedroom that glow kind of green. You turn off the lights and they glow green. So these are a type of um, phosphorescent paint. And they're also, which means basically, the light is stored and emitted when the lights are turned off. And there's also something called UV paint, which absorbs all the light incident upon it. And not only does it absorb the visible light, but it also absorbs the high energy UV light. And when the lights turn off, the UV light is re-emitted as visible light. So again, this is some of our electron transition. Uh, Pigments in glass, and we'll talk about Dale Chihuly and see a couple samples of his work and then go next time into detail. As promised, here is the list, reminder list of some pigment classifications. You can take a look at this for your different kinds of dyes. So, In the essay, I've asked you to sort of talk about the historical context a little bit. That will probably be easier to do, depending on which dye you take with the natural dyes, since they've been around for longer. But the synthetic dyes, as you know, have quite the interesting history. We talked about movine, and there are many different things that you can talk about with synthetic dyes and the spin-off science that came as a result of the development and invention of these types of dyes. So today One thing I want to remind you of is pigments, we're we're talking about pigments, we've talked about dyes, and today we're going to talk about paints. But recall that pigment is just the powdered substance, so pigments are both in dyes and in paints, and any pigment that you come across that you're interested in, if you see it in a dye form, it'll be in a paint form as well or other different kinds of forms. Or if you see a pigment today that we talk about in terms of paints that you're interested in, you can pretty much be assured that there'll be some sort of variant of that pigment in dye form. So all of that is open to you to write about for your essay. Let's start then with a question. So going back to redox reactions, in a redox reaction, that's reduction and oxidization, oxidization refers to something, an electron, whereas reduction refers to something, one, one being an electron. Okay, so what are we talking about? Which refers to which? Redox reaction, are we losing in a redox or gaining in a redox or gaining in a redox and losing in an oxidation? Or doubly sharing and singly sharing versus singly sharing and doubly sharing electrons in each of those cases? Okay, I'm going to... Oh, huh, interesting. Okay, it's a split vote. This is a confusing one. And I think I closed my uh, polling thing. Okay, here we go. All right, I'm going to close this off. So actually, in a redox reaction, it's often the opposite of what you would intuitively think. So oxidation refers to losing an electron, whereas reduction refers to gaining one. So the answer is A for that one. Now why is that? This is basically just the way the terminology has evolved. But think about what an electron is. In a redox reaction, we're dealing with the losing and the gaining of electrons in two compounds. So you have compound A up here and compound B. The reaction goes both ways, one, the whatever compound is reduced, the other one will be oxidized and vice versa. So since we're talking about the losing and gaining of electrons here, recall that electron is negative and intuitively though this doesn't really seem to make sense. When you're talking about reduction, if you think of numbers, negative numbers are much smaller than zero or positive numbers. So when you're reducing something, the the compound is gaining an electron, which means it's becoming increasingly negative. So it's becoming increasingly small in terms of charge, So that's how you can remember that it's being reduced. Greater negatives mean reduction. Whereas in the oxidization, what's happening is the substance is giving away electrons to the reduced partner who receives the electrons. And if it still kind of doesn't make a lot of sense, there's a simple mnemonic you can use to remember which is which. And the mnemonic, so a mnemonic is a device where you you know use the letters at the start of the words to remember. So this mnemonic is oil rig. For oxidation, means it loses, oil, O-I-L, and rig, reduction, rig, R-I-G, it gains, electrons. So it takes a while to get used to, but they are important reactions in all dyes, pretty much in all paints and all color changes. Remember, we talked about color reactions and we said when you are changing color of something, you're changing at a very core level the chemical properties of that substance. So there's some sort of molecular or atomic interaction going on, whether it be something becoming increasingly acidic or basic or something losing or gaining electrons, as in this case. Okay, last time we talked about that dyes, dyes that are uh, administered basically using large excavated vats in the ground. We talked about indigo specifically and in terms of the vat dye, can you remember the reason why it, the vat is dug deep in the ground? So vats for indigo dye baths are dug deep into the ground largely to prevent this. Is it the dye contamination from the humidity of the surrounding air? Or is it from breath of the people actually dyeing the substance? Um, From oxygen? Um, Is it shielding the dye itself from heat and temperature changes? Or is it to prevent spillage of the dye bath? Right. So in this case, oh, that's good, everybody remembers it's It is C, it's contamination from oxygen. Although breath certainly will contain oxygen, that's not the primary, I mean, the amount of oxygen from breath would be insignificant compared to the oxygen from exposure to air. So really when we're dying indigo, what happens when indigo comes into contact with oxygen and with the air, and also with sunlight, is one of these redox reactions. So the redox reaction causes the deepness of the blue in the indigo. And so, of course, if you are dyeing your substance and you have it in a vat, if you want it to be a very light blue, you'll take it out earlier. If you want it to be a dark blue, you'll live in there longer, then take it out into the oxygen and it will set. In terms of names of this, uh, of the different kind of sort of indigo, the redox reaction involved in indigo, um, basically what's happening here is the redox reaction makes the molecules, the dye molecules fixed to the indigo and the particular molecules involved. If you remember last time, I showed you a picture of a fabric during different stages of dyeing. And it went from being kind of whitish, yellowy, greenish to a nice dark blue. And that's your redox reaction. So what's happening in something like that is indigo in molecular form, it's something called leucoindigo or leucobase, which is that whitish, greenish color, is turning into insoluble indigo. So it's being reduced and the sol- insoluble indigo is being oxidized. You pull it out into the air, the leuco indigo turns into solu- to insoluble indigo, meaning that those dye molecules latch onto the fabric and are locked into the fabric by the exposure to the oxygen. So we talked about the production of a really incredible pigment called Chinese purple or Han purple last time. We specifically talked about it as being um, used extensively in in ancient China, but especially on one of the amazing monuments, the terracotta army, the terracotta soldiers. So the Chinese purple then was created by who? and today it might help us create better what? It looks like that one was somewhat memorable. And I'm going to stop now. So in this case, Chinese purple was created by Chinese alchemists. um, And I mean, obviously, at the time, they did not know about superconductors, which are materials that can conduct electrons uh, with incredible ability and allow us to have excellent computing tools and technology. Um, at the time this was not the point of Chinese purple, but the point w- was though uh, in the quest for sort of immortality and alchemy and looking for this basic elixir that was, was a solvent for everything. So to review, the Chinese purple, as you can see here, these are the terracotta army, the terracotta soldiers. They also had chariots and horses, and this was a necropolis, a city of the dead built for the first emperor of China. So it was created by the alchemists about 2400 years ago or so, and among other things, they were looking how to combine interesting ways of combining mercury and sulfur, which were the two main alchemical elements also with salt as well, they were looking for a quest for jade for immortality. But later on, it took us many, many years to actually figure out what this pigment was and how the soldiers were painted because the paint obviously decayed over many years. Recently, a sample of it was found, it was analyzed, and uh, you got this beautiful sort of picture of how these soldiers originally looked. Furthermore, when physicists got a hold of this pigment sample, they took it to a super magnet, basically one of the world's largest magnets, put it in the super magnet, uh, X-ray analyzed it, basically submitted it to UV radiation, and found things that they absolutely did not expect. And this is some of the sort of analysis. These are the analysis pictures. They analyze, analyze spectral curves, what wavelengths it absorbed, what wavelengths it emitted. And the amazing thing they found was when we talked about light, we talked about matter, we talked a little bit about quantum physics. And one of the ways in which light transitions in this molecule gives it an incredible property of, taking waves usually which are generated in three dimensions and collapsing that into a two-dimensional wave. That's a little bit out there, but why is that important? Well, it's important in terms of the behavior of superconductors, which allow us to make better computers, better technology, etc., because we really need to understand how these two-dimensional states of matter work to build effective, efficient superconductors. It's quite amazing. We have an ancient thing giving us insight into how to improve our technology. So then let's move on to paints and continue talking about paints from where we left off last time. Uh, You should recognize this slide from last time. Uh, We talked about early examples of paints and one of the earliest examples of human beings trying to show us color as we see it is in the Lascaux cave paintings, which are in France. The paintings are about 17,000, 18,000 years old in this incredible sort of cave in France where all of the walls are covered with depictions of scenes from daily life, hunters, animals, um, etc. You can see here some horses. There's also one specific gallery, which is called the Hall of Bulls, which is large and has these bull paintings that are several feet long, larger than human beings. And it's really incredible to think that people 18,000 years ago uh, had the wherewithal to record all of this. The way they did it was using different pigments. They ground up natural pigments that we find like ochres found in nature, so these were for the reds, and carbon for the blacks. In fact, it was charcoal, it was carbon ground up as charcoal, but basically this is what gave us these beautiful paintings. We already talked about Chinese purple and then at the same time, if you recall the video that we saw last time, um, one of the questions physicists had when they looked deeply at the molecular structure of Chinese purple was whether there was actually like a chemical technology transfer from ancient Egypt to China. Although it wasn't known at that time, I mean the Silk Road had not been opened. The trading was not known to be occurring at that time. And one of the examples of some of these beautiful Egyptian pigments is Egyptian faience, which is copper, basically copper sulfide ground into sand and heated up to produce this blue, glassy, sort of glazed-looking substance, which is faience, which you see a lot of the time in Egyptian artifacts. So you can see things getting increasingly sophisticated over the years. Let's do a little more detailed walk through color as developed in art. Let's take a look for the first bit at cave paintings because these are our first examples of color, human production of color I should say. So cave paintings are called Known as archaeologically known as parietal art. That just means prehistoric cave art. There's lots of sort of distinctions and lots of different eras based on what kind of materials they use, what region things were found in, but the first sort of parietal art was from caves in Africa. You can see there's not a lot of color in this picture. It's a cave called the Blombos Cave. And it's mainly, it's almost looking more like carving than color. This is about 70,000 years ago, which is quite impressive. These caves, sort of the Franco-Cantabrian time period, are where we have most of our cave painting, where most of our understanding of how humans at that time depicted color comes from. The most plentiful supplies are from this era, from 40,000 to 10,000 BC. And you can see a rhinoceros, or something that looks like a rhino, or an elephant, or I'm not sure, I think it's a rhino, at the Chauvet Cave, which is in France again. Uh, A lot of these paintings in this time were found in the France and Spain region. Mm, Let's take a look at how they made these paintings. Before we do that, just to show you. Again, do not memorize this, no need to memorize this. This is not going to be tested. This is just to show you all of the interesting sort of samples of cave art that we have with all of the different eras basically going from back from 40,000 BC up to 2000 BC, the Neolithic Age or the New Stone Age. This is a Lascaux painting. This painting I don't exactly remember but I believe this is from a cave in Spain you can see the red ochres they had handprints and they sprayed or painted the red ochres around handprints it's really a a nice human feeling painting example how did they do it let's go back then to the caves the cave paintings at Lascaux. typically at that time pigments were ground up to make a fine particle powder and in the tool. Obviously, we didn't have mills, we didn't have machines, we had good old-fashioned mortar and pestle. So the pigment powders were ground up by using um, a mortar and pestle with using the animal shoulder bones as the mortar, so the grinding stick in this bowl, essentially. Um, but humans at the time were smart. They realized that they needed their newly produced pigment or paint adhere to the cave walls, and if you've tried to paint, even put a crayon on rock or something, you'll see that it's very hard to get it to take. So they developed a lot of different techniques on how to get this paint to adhere. So they mixed the paint with, among other things, cave water, uh, vegetable juice, blood, urine. These things all assisted with the adhesion process, and some of them assisted as well with the actual color creation or added, augmented to the sense of color that were in these paintings. An interesting fact is that cave water was high in calcium carbonate, and this worked as something we call in paints an extender. So to understand what an extender is, we're going to talk now about paints, components of paints, and different characteristics of paints. So the definition of a paint, I mean the purpose and definition of a paint. A paint is essentially a color mixture. This kind of color mixture is called a colloid. It's a color mixture that is applied to change the color on a surface or paint. A, but remember this is just the surface, whereas a dye infuses the whole fabric or material at the molecular level with color, a paint coats something at a surface superficial level only. So that's what a paint is. To further define this term colloid, a colloid is just a mixture where you have these particles that are essentially suspended in the mixture. And they're very, very small, so they don't sink to the bottom. If you remember in dyes and pigments, we talked about pigments specifically having a property called specific gravity. And that had to do with whether the particles float or sink or remain suspended in water. Part of that has to do with particle size And what we saw when we looked in detail at graphs of some particle size and some common pigments, we saw two things. One was that, although it would be nice to have particles of all the same size, I mean, it is nature, so you had varying sizes, a varying size distribution of these particles and these pigments, but in general, number two, second thing is that the particle size was very, very small compared to the water molecule size, and therefore the particles did not dissolve or interact with the water at the molecular level. So This is what you have in a colloid. It's like a suspension. Let's look at the three main constituents of paints then. So I think you can probably guess the first one, pigment. Key to any color substance, we must have a pigment giving the substance color and giving it opacity which means basically it's the opposite of transparency, giving it a thick non-see-through coat. So a pigment. The second property of paints is the binding medium or a binder. It's sometimes called a resin or a matrix. But the binder is basically what the vehicle is that carries the paint. It is the substance that hardens, which keeps the paint on the surface, and allows it to permanently coat the surface. So this is a binder. And finally, we have a solvent. If you remember what a solvent is, a solvent is something in which something else is dissolved. The solvent has the role in paint of dissolving the binder, dissolves the binding medium. So if you had some binding medium that made the paint, when it dried, be really, really hard, you could put in a solvent which would essentially thin out the paint. So this gives the paint greater fluidity, and it also helps in a number of, of different ways, things like not having brush strokes on the canvas if you thin out your paint a little bit more. This, these two elements, the binding medium and the solvent are, for kind of obvious reasons, known sometimes as the vehicle, they're the vehicle which delivers the, the pigment to whatever surface you're applying it to. There are some other constituents of paint, though, especially in our modern age where we have many different uses for paint other than decorative. You typically have decorative paints for painting pictures, for indoor art, but you also have a lot of paints for outdoor industrial uses. Um, As you know, you'll have coders that if you have a wood surface outside, you have deck coders, a whole bunch of different paints. So there are other things that we put in paints, and we did do this before, but more so now because we have so many different technologies with paints that we can use. Other things than those main three constituents, and we're going to talk about two of them, and these two things are additives and extenders. So all these do is sort of change the properties of the paint to suit our purposes. So the additives can change things like the particle size in the paint, they can change how well the paint weathers, how well it, uh, you know, is, if it's waterproof, if it weathers by a certain amounts when it's redu- re- exposed to the elements, and you can also change things by adding specific additives with chemical properties like how long the paint takes to dry. That's one really annoying thing if you're painting a picture and uh, you're sort of, unfortunately, being a little sloppy. You don't want to have wet paint all the time. It's much better when your picture dries. So you can have fast-drying paints. And this is uh, the industrial chemistry industry working on this, developing new additives all the time to help with products extenders. These are interesting. They're actually larger pigment particles that are added to your paint to basically improve the adhesion or the sticking to the surface and also to preserve that binder material that we talked about before. So let's look at some compositions. This is an example um, The site is on the next page, but this is an example of paint composition from an industrial uh, paint site. So you can see here that we have basically the three main elements. We have the pigment, about a quarter of the paint is actually the pigment. Uh, We have the binder, and then we have the solvent, which is looking like it's really making up, in most cases, most of the paint. And in these two cases, we have small amounts or smaller amounts of extender and additives. The extenders can help as well. I talked about thinning out paint to help with eliminating sort of depending on what kind of painting you're doing, if you're trying to do really realistic painting, like old master painting, you do not want to see brush strokes. So things like extenders can help increase the flow of the paint, make it more fluid, have kind of that thinning out effect, so you don't get brush strokes. In fact, in a lot of industrial paints, wall paints, nobody wants to see big brush strokes on their walls, so extenders are a common uh, thing that are added into different kinds of paints. The additives, Remember that changes sort of the um, structure of the paint. The additives can be things called volatiles. We haven't talked about volatiles yet, but volatiles are essentially chemicals which vaporize and then emit certain gases. So volatiles are, they're called VOCs. You may probably have seen this term volatile organic compounds, and these are contained in a lot of paints. The greener kind of paints do not contain a lot of VOCs, they try to cut down on this because given that this emits gases, it's typically uh, thought to be harmful to the environment. So here's a slide with a lot of text on it. These are some typical paint attributes. These are not our paint. Constituents, but just to give you an idea of some of the paint properties that we look at, and some of them that chemists look at specifically to tailor and to modify, as you can see, all of these things uh, are studied intensely and used to inform chemical science on how to improve paints. So you can see. We want something that has high opacity that doesn't actually show the background color through it. We often want something that's easy to apply. We're going to see different kind of paints in a second. And the oil paints typically are not as easy to apply. If you have an oil paint versus acrylic paints, you can go buy acrylic paints at the bookstore actually. The York bookstore has a nice sort of selection of them. But the oil paints are a little bit harder to apply and to get used to. It's a slightly different painting technique. The acrylics are super easy to apply. You just kind of squirt, mix, paint, and you're set. Um, What else do we have here? Heat resistance. Heat resistance is a curious one, given that we're going to talk in a moment about different types of paint. One type of paint is called encaustic paint, and that has been around for a very, very long time. It sounds high-techy, but what it really is, is just painting with wax. Encaustic paint comes in a solid form, and when you apply it to canvas, you often have something that's kind of like, it's a stylus, it's kind of like a blowtorch, but you heat up the paint, the wax and you apply it, or you sometimes have an iron. But in terms of heat resistance, you do not particularly want encaustic paints to be typically very, very heat resistant, or else they wouldn't melt, and you wouldn't be able to apply them. Most other paints, though, we do want our paint not flaking off in intense heat. I mentioned it briefly last time, so I'm just wondering if you remember. In this course so far, we mentioned this number of different types of paint. is in. Kay. Four is a good guess. It was actually C. It was actually five. And I'm going to show those to you now. So here were the five different types of paint. And these are the only five types of paint that we're going to be discussing in the course, and these will probably pretty much all be familiar to you, even if you don't know them by name, they'll certainly be familiar to you in terms of art examples, as you'll see when I show you different examples of each of these five types. So we have oil paint, which is obviously using oil as the binder substance. We have acrylic paint, we have watercolor paint, encaustic paint and tempera-based paint. The tempera paint uses as a binder, and this was some of the Renaissance, sort of the the Renaissance and medieval pictures that you see, the typical old masters, worked in tempera medium. So the tempera medium was using your pigments, but mixing that with egg yolk as a binder. So let's see some, uh, some examples then. Here are some examples of oil paintings. As you go essentially from left to right, you're going to see the paintings from the earliest times to more contemporary times, about 17 years ago. But some of the oldest examples of oil paintings are found in the ruins of Buddhist cave temples and Buddhist statues that were painted. These statues came from something called the Bamian Valley in Afghanistan. They were from about the 7th century. Uh, As you can see, they're not clearly preserved, but you can certainly see the pigment on them. These are some pretty incredible paintings. There are statues. Unfortunately, a lot of it was destroyed recently with events. uh, The Taliban specifically destroyed a lot of these monuments in the Bamian Valley. But some of them are still there and we can still see early painting. Um, Next, this is like a Rococo era, like 1700s. This is a picture called The Blue Boy, which was painted by a painter, Charles Gainsborough. This is probably his most famous painting. But what's really incredible in this painting is the detail of the fabric and the sheen of the fabric and the way he sort of layered the paint to give you that silky feeling and a sort of transparency and specularity, basically the reflection highlights. This is an absolutely amazing clothing study from that year. So you can see, you can get kind of very sort of crude, not beautiful but not realistic paintings and then you can also get super, super ultra realism with oil paints. These paintings, there's actually two. I'm afraid it doesn't translate too well on the screen, but on this side here, this is a very famous Gustav Klimt painting called The Kiss. And on this side, this is another Klimt painting called Golden Tears. So you can see there's realism in his paintings, but it's also kind of surrealist and, and sort of Mixing different styles here. But these paintings are also done in oil paint with oil as the binder for the pigments. And finally, I get to show one of my favorite sort of modern artists. His name is Jonathan Bowser. He paints a lot of sort of fantasy type oil portraits, which are really stunning to look at and use really vibrant colors. He's got these really deep purples. This particular Painting is called Lotus Wood, and it's from 2001. So you've got the full spectrum with oils. Realistic, abstract, surrealist, everything from the beginnings of earliest paint history. Here are some acrylics. This one doesn't particularly look too much like a painting. It looks kind of more like pictures of Campbell's soup cans, all different flavors. And this is a famous piece. You, you may recognize it. It's a famous piece by Andy Warhol, who was kind of the pop artist. He made pop culture art. He has those pictures of uh, Marilyn Monroe with different shades with four panels. So this was Andy Warhol using acrylic paints. And Warhol actually found that acrylic paints were typically his medium. As opposed to a lot of the, the detailed painters who used oil, he decided Acrylic was his thing, and you can see he did a job painting all these Campbell's soup cans. With acrylics, they're easy to use. I had mentioned this earlier. You just buy the tube, put it on your palette, and start painting. Mix with a little water. Go ahead and paint. You don't even have to mix it that much with water. Uh, A lot of acrylics are used now in the place of oil paints. They're easier to set up easier to purchase, and you can see here, if you've ever gone to one of those uh, paint night events where you sit and you have some wine and you paint a picture, usually that's using acrylic paints, and you can use acrylics to get the same effect as oil, and this lady here is doing a reproduction painting of Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night with acrylics. One uh, thing to note about acrylic paints, acrylic paints were invented and produced in the 1940s. So if you see acrylic art and it looks like a gorgeous old masters painting, I mean you can get some amazing reproductions. You know though, if it's an acrylic, it's not older than 1940. So often you can use the medium to date a picture, or also to see if a picture is a copy or a fraud. When I showed you those sort of Roman mummy portraits, you can subject the paint pigments and the pigments within the paint to ultraviolet analysis, X-ray analysis, all kinds of different light analysis to probe down to the deep levels of the paint and see what's there, and basically from X-raying a painting, you can see if it's a fake or not based on how those pigments behave and which media they are. Another medium which wouldn't be particularly helpful telling you what time period something is from as opposed to acrylics is watercolour. Watercolour paintings have been used as well since basically the beginning of time. People mix a pigment with water and try and uh, make it stick to something, it doesn't always work that well. Watercolors tend to be very, very pastel. But the examples I'm showing you here look really realistic. These two are by a watercolor master artist called Samuel Prout. He lived in sort of the mid-1800s and uh, King George, I think it was King George IV of England, actually appointed him master watercolor painter. Uh, in residence, basically. So he did a lot of European scenes, and you can see his watercolor usage is incredibly realistic. Before Prout, though, for realistic watercolors, there was Albrecht Durer, and he was a very, the first very early artist-turned-biologist. He did a lot of beautiful watercolor illustrations of plants and flowers. And as you can see, this is a young rabbit, a young hare from 1502. Coming back a little bit to a more recent era turn of the century, John Singer Sargent also sort of painted this watercolor study of water with some very beautiful highlights and different things going on there. So let's take a look to show you, before I show you the um, encaustic paint examples, this video is very, very short, it's about two minutes, but it's just going to show you what one technique of encaustic paint application looks like. So remember, encaustic paint is like wax, comes in solid form, you either use a kind of an iron, specifically designed for this, or a stylus, which is like a blowtorch, or you can actually use a hair dryer and just use a hairdryer as you put on your paint.
1: My name is John Vanderbrook, and on behalf of Expert Village I want you to take a look at beginning encaustic painting. You know, it's not going to be long before you're going to want to make a realistic painting after you play with abstracts for a while. So all you have to do is just add some color onto your iron. And, you know, don't think about it too much. I mean, uh, some people worry over the colors. And here I just have a lot of fun grabbing different colors and seeing what happens when I put that back onto the page to see what kind of sky I get. Oh, I might add a little blue in over here. Okay, let's see what we get. I'm just going to pull that across the card and try to see what kind of a sky I can create with this combination of colors. Not bad, you know? And very simple, it's not something you have to worry about a lot when you're, when you're doing, you know, like pre-thinking. Now you're just going to want to add a little landscape under that, so add a little green onto the front of your iron, like that, and take some brown, and put that in the, what I'd call the upper edge of the iron, When you turn the iron over, that'll be the upper edge, and that'll be the top of your hills. So create a figure, a lazy figure eight pattern, going off the card, and starting off the card, and going off the card the other way, and having it make a lazy figure eight pattern, coming down, keeping the iron horizontal to your work. And here we go, starting off the page, going over and off and back, and over and off and back, and we'll keep this going down the card, and add a little bit more wax in here., let's oh, get that off. Add a little bit more wax so to get some landscape effects in the foreground. And you end up with a simplistic looking little landscape that you can then begin to add a lot of details in with your stylus tool, although you could put some grasses in just even with the edge of the iron if you wanted to. But the stylus works really good for adding those details in.
0: So there you have some encaustic paint, which is kind of a fun way to do, do things yourself. And then obviously early paintings, wax was common. It's actually beeswax used in encaustic paints, so this was a common thing that would have been around for candles uh, in, in, you know, pretty good supply. But take a look at the, these incredibly detailed master encaustic Paintings. This one is an icon from the 6th century. It's from St. Catherine's Monastery during the Christian occupied period of Egypt in the 6th century. It's really completely amazing all of the detail in it and to think that it's made with wax. And speaking of those mummy portraits I keep going back to, the Roman occupied Egypt, some of the mummies Instead of the traditional Egyptian um, mummification rite and how they were sort of enrobed, the mummies were made in the same way using the um, extraction of the organs and the wrapping with tight sort of bandages. But instead of being put in a heavy stone sarcophagus, they were often put in wooden sarcophagi or wooden kind of coffins and right, almost like a cut and paste job, right on the top of the wooden coffin where the face would be, they stuck these kinds of mummy portraits. And these were encaustic portraits, quite amazing. So now we get to egg tempera. Tempera paints probably are, if you're going to do a tour of classical art, tempera paint medium is pretty much what you're going to find. So a couple of these pictures, you'll probably, or maybe all of these pictures, you may recognize. Again, I've tried to give a sample from older times to modern times. With the oldest painting that I have here, this is using yolk, egg yolk as the binder. This is Madonna and Child by Duccio uh, in 1300. And this one I think probably all of you will recognize. It's the Burt of... Venus, and that's by Botticelli. That was done in the late 1400s. All of this done using egg yolk as the binder. A more modern tempera painting is this famous painting called Christina's World. It's by Andrew Wyeth. It's kind of an interesting painting because she had, um, she was actually crawling in the grass in this painting. She had a polyneuropathy. She basically had deformations. You couldn't walk properly, which you wouldn't know from looking at that painting, but he was just kind of struck with this image, and he used yoke binder to paint a very classical looking modern scene from the late 1940s. So there are a number of historically important pigments that you'll probably notice in paint colors in these paintings. And as you saw, just kind of looking through that small example, looking both from uh, many, many thousands of years ago even, thousands to hundreds to current day years ago, we can trace a little bit of an evolution of how paint progressed through the centuries. But we do see often the use of some very common pigments, and we're going to talk about those paint colors and their associated pigments now. Before I start talking about that, it is usually where we would have a break, um, but it's really, I think it will be a really shorter lecture today, so I'm just going to go through the break, it won't be that much longer, and uh, push through and finish this and let you guys out early today. So with some of the paintings that we looked at before, a number of colors stick out, and I'm going to talk about a few of them, namely colors colors like ultramarine, which is this beautiful deep blue, vermilion, which is red, and the cobalt blues, greens, and purples, which are quite interesting. They were discovered in 18 the way to produce them in a synthetic form was discovered in 1802. However, a curious thing about cobalt blues is if you think about blue glass and about pottery, going back as far back to the Mesopotamians, there was a pigment that was very much like cobalt blue. It was a kind of a cobalt, but it was essentially cobalt glass, and they tried to grind this up and use this um, in some… they used it in pottery, but not so much in paint. The paint, cobalt blues, greens and purples were synthesized, synthetic inorganic dye, uh, paints, pardon me, in 1802 onward. So let's look at some examples of paints. Now This is a bit of an overwhelming slide, but if you were to go and this is particularly – if you wanted to do, let's say, an oil painting, um, this is a, is a sheet a catalogue essentially of all the oil paints premixed that are offered by a famous uh, oil painting company which is Windsor & Newton. They're called Winton Paints. But you can see all of these shades. And if you look through all the names, if you're not an artist, initially some of this stuff looks like it's arbitrary and very specific maybe to the paint company, but it's not. Things like Let's see, Mars, even Mars black, alizarin crimson, the cadmium yellows, here are the cobalts, cobalt blue, cobalt blue, green, turquoise. Uh, other things like scarlet lake, rose matter, uh, these are all traditional paints, so regardless of the paint company who is manufacturing your paints, you do see a lot of these shades all over the place. Let's talk about a little bit of why and what they are. So let's start with the most recent first. We'll go the opposite way of the history tour. Uh, Cobalt green, as you saw in that previous picture, is greens, blues, turquoises, violets. Cobalt blue is actually from a a molecular compound that's cobalt aluminum oxide and that was discovered by a chemist named Thénard in uh, 1802. So you do get these very beautiful, rich, deep, cobalt, greeny-blue purples, cool colors, and you see that a lot in usage today. One of the illustrators, and again, I I am subjecting to some of my favorite artists, so apologies in advance for that, but one of the artists I showed when we looked at color schemes, specifically we were looking at analogous color schemes, is an illustrator, sort of from turn of the century, early American illustrator named Maxfield Parrish. He was at the time, in the 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, one of the most, if not the most, famous illustrator in the world. And he used cobalt blue so much, in fact, in all of his paintings, as you can see, pretty much all of his paintings that it was sometimes it was nicknamed and sometimes referred to as parish blue so if you look up maxfield parish you'll see quite a few of his paintings he did a lot of illustrations for storybooks he also did a picture which i don't think it's it's not there but it's a picture of a lady with her arms up sort of with the with a shawl and the shawl blowing back in the wind And this ended up being a Chrysler logo. It it was adopted as a car company sort of logo at one point. So that's Maxfield Parish. Let's talk about the next color then. Going from the opposite, extreme from, if you remember, very short wavelengths of blue, we're going to very long wavelengths of red. And vermilion is one of these colors you'll see extremely often in paintings a very bright red. This is a Titian painting from uh, a Venice cathedral. And you can see all the use of the red, the rich red in the robes. But red vermilion, the vermilion hue, actually comes from an ore, which is mined. And this ore is something called cinnabar. Cinnabar was also used a lot in Chinese antiquity paintings, like we were talking about the terracotta soldiers, you do see cinnabar paint on them as well. So the compound itself is cinnabar mercuric sulfide. So it's extracted as an ore, ground up into a pigment, and then mixed with a binder. In this case, it's a tempera binder, so it's egg yolk, to make this beautiful bright red paint. Another beautiful blue we have here is ultramarine. So ultramarine, again, you see this in a lot of classical paintings, and you often see this, given that this, the paintings from this era that we mainly have are religious paintings, but you do always see the Madonnas, the Virgin Mary painted with these beautiful blue, ultramarine blue robes, as in here, which is. Osirvana Masters, Madonna and Child. Ultramarine was very expensive. It was very hard to get because it specifically came from the beautiful mineral, the beautiful stone lapis lazuli. So you probably have seen lapis lazuli. It was used a lot in jewelry in ancient Egypt, but it is this beautiful dark blue stone, often with flecks of little gold in it. And lapis lazuli, what makes it that kind of color blue, contains this material called a mineral, it's called lazulite. And when you actually, if you could extract the pure lazulite, it's like a nice, easily flexible substance, it's soft, but of course, the lazulite is bound up in the lapis lazuli, so to produce such a blue as this, you would have to grind the lapis lazuli up into fine particles, which was a painstaking laborious process, which is also why it was so expensive. Today here's one of those Winton paints that I was showing you. This is an ultramarine paint pigment. You can buy it. I think you can even buy the same exactly that I think at the bookstore. It's uh, it's called French Ultramarine. This is not from Lapis Lazuli. This is a synthetic pigment. It's a synthetic uh, version of ultramarine. And it's a lot cheaper today, so it's easy to find, easy to use. And it's synthetic and inorganic. But let's go back to the natural inorganic pigment. Recall ultramarine, it's lapis lazuli, so it's natural, it's found in nature, and it's inorganic. Lapis lazuli is a stone, it was never living, therefore inorganic. So how it's made is, as I've said before, the lapis lazuli is ground up. And then these these grinds are mixed with wax, oil, basically flax oil, and pine resin to get them sticky and to go together, basically. After this, this sort of sticky mixture is kneaded in a lye bath and produces these brilliant blue lazulite crystals. The crystals are then basically strained and used to be collected and mixed with whatever binder you're using to make your paint. So often when you'll see the beautiful ultramarine blues in the religious paintings, it's because really the church and sort of the wealthier part of society were the only people who had the money to buy this expensive pigment and commission paintings with ultramarine blue. Uh, And I've said before, lazulite, pure lazulite, it doesn't come in that form really naturally. You have to extract it, but it's a soft material, but you have to go to all this trouble because you have this uh, hard lapis lazuli. This is an example. Uh, This is a famous Renoir painting, Pierre-Auguste Renoir in the 1800s is a famous Impressionist And in this painting, you can see he's using actually these two colors of blue. It's kind of interesting. On one side of the painting, you have this lady looking kind of forlorn with this basket. And then on the other side, you have observers in a crowd with umbrellas. And consequently, the painting is called Les Parapluies, which is umbrellas. But in this painting, you can see Renoir used cobalt blue. But he also used ultramarine blue. At this time in his life, Renoir was kind of experimenting with a lot of different styles and the painting itself, you can see that one side of it is done in a more realistic style while the other side is kind of more impressionistic, like the little girl, she's feathery and her, the flowers in her hair and stuff and on her bonnet are feathery. So it's an interesting thing, but here, on the woman here, we have this kind of ultramarine blue. And in these kinds of lighter blues, we have the cobalt blue. So it's, it's uncommon that you see two different kinds of blue pigments mixed, but that's an interesting side note. Another pigment, and we mentioned this, so you'll probably recognize a lot of these names. We've talked about a lot of these pigments. We've talked about them as dye and that's where, going back to your essay, if you see here a pigment that you like, if it's a paint, chances are it'll be a dye and you can write about that particular pigment. But a, a common painting pigment is emerald green paint. It's also called Paris green, more frequently Paris green than, uh, than um, Vienna green, but it can be called that as well. But it's very poisonous. This is a poisonous paint that contains arsenic and is incredibly toxic, but is just so beautiful that it's used quite a lot by the Impressionists and by Gauguin and Van Gogh as well. So here's, here's the commercial product of emerald green, emerald green is used also or was used as a rat poison. Okay, so we did blues, we did greens, now let's take a quick look at a yellow. This is an example of chrome yellow, with a painting again by Vincent van Gogh, Sunflowers. Uh, he used chrome yellow very often, but the thing about chrome yellow is it could turn very easily to brown. And the reason that this happens, and I'm sure you can guess where this, where this is going, the reason that happens is a redox reaction. So what's happening is the chromium in the paint is being oxidized. It is basically, sorry, being reduced. It's gaining an electron. So the chromium gets reduced. It gains electrons from that oil binder base. And sometimes if there's something else present, a specific compound present, a white compound called, uh, it's a barium compound, then your beautiful yellows, degenerate into muddy browns. So one pigment I mentioned last time is the only pigment that's not a color that I've talked about today. So white pigment, this is lead white or flake white pigment, and it has uh, uh, a unique way of being made, which is quite amazing that humans, again, thought of doing this, lead flake white pigment is made by taking lead coils, as you can see in this picture, and putting them in these bowls. Now you can't see the bottom of the bowl in this picture, but the bottom of the bowl, let's say the bowl is kind of, whoops, is shaped like this, and it has sort of this compartment at the bottom where you put something very acidic like vinegar so vinegar is at the base of this and you have these lead coils sitting on top being exposed to these acidic vinegar fumes what happens with this is as you leave them to sit incubating over time the lead coils sort of gain this rust-like white flaky substance on them, as you see in the second picture here. And that flaky substance is flaked off and used as lead white pigment. So it's flaked off, and for this reason, the pigment's called flake white. And just to make a a distinction here, you'll see also some pigments today available in paint tubes called flake white. They aren't actually lead white, they're not made with lead, but the idea is it's the same kind of a shade, but that's not actually original flake white. So we're talking here about lead flake white, which is using lead, which is also toxic. And if you're a painter, you can still get lead white. You can buy, it's regulated to be sold now in only smaller tubes due to its toxicity. But you can buy it and make beautiful sort of uh, bright, crisp whites with it. And it doesn't, if you're a painter and you're using it, uh, unless you're ingesting it, it's not going to kill you. I mean, if you were to plaster it all over your body, maybe, that would be a bad thing. You just dissolve, you deserve, get um, blemishes and sores. And you can actually see this because lead white, in addition to being a paint, was used very popularly in the cosmetics industry from ancient times to pseudo-modern times up to the 1700s as a skin lightener and that had some pretty disastrous consequences. I'll talk about that more in a second. I just want to show you an example of a painting where we have, where we see some lead white. This is of course a really famous painting that you may recognize It's um, Johannes Vermeer, Girl with a Pearl Earring, and he used these beautiful, so this is lead white, this is lead white, the hues in her face, the ivory skin is kind of a lead white, and you'll see that a lot of the masters like Vermeer and Rembrandt used this lead white copiously in their paintings. It had permanency, and it didn't fade too much over time. Today we replace lead white with something called titanium white, which has a, titanium white, which has a higher, if you remember, tinting strength of pigment. So it's stronger; the white comes out more strongly, and it's not toxic. One thing about master painters, which is quite um, a well-developed technique is if you were looking at the paintings of the old masters, they did paint with very specific techniques to achieve the depth and the realism that they got. And that may seem like an art thing only, but if you think about it, it really is, again, the science of color, the science of physics. What's happening in those old masters paintings to give you the depth is there are layers of paints. Each of those paints has a different refractive index and the light is being reflected and redirected in different ways. So you get this interesting combination of a complex light source, which is kind of reflecting things in different directions, and that gives you the depth perception when the light is reflected into your eye. Uh, There are many ways to do this, and one of the ways is a technique called glazing which is basically painting different layers, but in glazed paintings, lead white was specifically important because going back to earlier lectures, if you recall the properties of color, we had hue, saturation, and value. So value was the lightness or the darkness of a color, how black or how white it is. And in a lot of these um, master paintings, specifically in Rembrandt, they would underpaint the canvas as the picture basically in black and white, and then apply the color layers on top of it, so that you could get your different tints and shades, or combinations of white and black, and get that richness and that depth depth. Okay, so that's that painting. I'll talk a little bit more about glazing in a second. But going back to flake white as a cosmetic pigment, is this Queen Elizabeth I, uh, well her favorite uh, famous coronation painting? People thought Elizabeth I, I mean, she always had this white paint, but people assume that she used lead white. That's not verified, but she's one of the most common people that everyone talks about is using lead white as a cosmetic skin whitener. It was used though since ancient Egyptian times, people said Cleopatra used lead white as well to make her skin look milky and ivory in appearance, but unfortunately it was hardly a beauty product because it was very toxic, caused the body to break out in sores, skin to break, cuts, all kinds of very unpleasant effects. And in fact, one lady in the 1600s used it so much that she got so many sores and blemishes she kept applying and applying and lacquering and lacquering it on to cover up these blemishes and eventually died of, of lead poisoning. So consequently, we do not use lead white in any cosmetics anymore or as any kind of bodily applied product. So you, as you can see, there's quite a few paints with uh, toxic components. We talked about emerald green. We just talked about lead white. In the case case of white lead, there was lead white. uh, A labor, the International Labor Organization mandated uh, essentially the prohibition of it in a number of countries. And this happened in 1921, but you can still get it in in most countries, actually, just in smaller tubes. And we replaced it with titanium white, which is non-toxic and has a higher tinting strength of the pigment, so better white stronger, stronger white I should say. Not better white, different white. Okay. So let's uh, start to close down then with uh, looking at some of this color, color technique and color in depth. These are Rembrandt pieces. This is Rembrandt himself in a self-portrait when he was about, I think he was 63 in that. Uh, This is another uh, Rembrandt portrait, when he was at his height of his career, you can see that, look how the shadows are, are just incredibly accentuated in the ruff of her collar. So, he, Rembrandt was often called the master of light and shadow. He painted these specific, dramatic lighting portraits. And actually, if you're into photography at all, or video or anything, there's something called Rembrandt lighting, it's how you direct the light on a portrait, and if you think about, um, you can look in these pictures, he often has the people with a kind of a three-quarter turn like this, and if you take a look underneath the eye, between the eye and the nose here, there's, you could imagine that there's like a triangle there, and that's called a Rembrandt triangle, and in terms of lighting, And photograph lighting and portrait photography, especially dramatic portrait photography, people look at that Rembrandt triangle to judge how good the lighting is. And see, uh, it's easier instead of changing the lighting, you just ask the person to move. So you can ask the person to move, step in or step back to have this better sort of Rembrandt triangle. How did he achieve these effects? It's really like a photograph almost. So he achieved this by a technique which I mentioned called glazing, and the glazing used like an underpainting. So what the artist did, what Rembrandt himself did, because there was no way of actually taking a photograph or a black and white picture, is looking at his subject, he imagined the scene basically as black and white in his mind and decomposed each area into values of black and white. So remember we talked about different color systems with different values going from 0 to 10, with 0 being black and 10 being white. That's the Munsell system. So you can imagine these values of different things. So Rembrandt underpainted these with black and white, with different values, and then applied the color coats, multiple coats on top of it. He also used the the flake web with the binder with the yolk, but he also used chalk. And the chalk, when you take chalk and you mix it with linseed oil, you can get these incredibly ghostly, kind of translucent-looking pigments, which are really good for white fabrics and different things. So he used a lot of glazing and glazing with chalk as well as glazing with paint in his pictures. So all of the depth of this, the layers all together, gave you different refractive indices, which gave you that depth illusion and the rich color and the opacity. So next time you see an old master's painting, you can think about glazing, and you could even try it if you're an artist. Try underpainting your picture in black and white and applying colors over top. And this is a, a quick video just showing you some of the paints that we talked about. To
2: inspire young people and community groups to connect with Van Dyck, we've been sharing his portraits from Dulwich Picture Gallery and discussing old master techniques. Take the time before you start painting to choose your subject matter carefully and set up your studio correctly In this way, you avoid making big changes to your composition later on and can find your rhythm quickly. Today, to coincide with the exhibition, we will be focusing on the portrait. Portraiture, as demonstrated by Van Dyck, is a way of capturing a likeness, a social status, or a psychology. In this gallery, you can see all different types of portraits, all different types of materials used, and different paint surfaces. So there are so many choices to be made before you even start putting paint to canvas. Choosing the right light is pivotal. The light will affect the palette you choose. A strong light source will give more drama and richer colors, as with Van Dyke, Samson and Delilah. A subtle light source will convey softness, as with Lady Digby. Obviously, pre-20th century artist was painted with natural light, now the light setup is from here so we've just got a a, a soft north light setup brushes are differentiated by their shape filberts flats and rounds and the type of hair used to make them hog sable or mongoose today we have many more colors to choose from than artists did 400 years ago i am going to use a limited palette of ultramarine blue burnt umber chinese vermilion red yellow ochre and lead white through subtle mixing we're able to create a myriad of options my palette runs from light to dark but generally by the end of the day i'll have the same value so it's kind of going from the very lights to the lighter mid-tone to the darker mid tones to the darks and it should be running along a kind of a a cool channel and and a warm channel so whether you're working with watercolour, gouache, egg tempera, but the pigment is the same and it's the binder that changes. For oils, the binder is cold pressed linseed oil. Canada Balsam and damar Varnish can also be added to make the paint more versatile. If you start on a a crude white background, then when you put your lights down it has no effects, so it's nicer to start with a a mid-tone background than going both darker and lighter. The best method to start as a beginner is in moderation. Establish your shapes and values first, and then add the correct colors on top within the correct value pattern. Today, the most commonly used method of oil painting is direct painting, also known as a la prima or au premier coup. The paint is applied directly onto the canvas, ideally with the correct color value and shape for each brush stroke. And what's amazing is at the end of the session how there are areas of the painting that haven't got any paint on them. It's just the first block and where I put the top of forehead, eyebrow, eye mark, and chin are still exactly the same place. You don't need to cover everything. That's not the purpose of painting. The setup, the lighting, the tools we use, and the manner we apply the paint all affect the final result. To be a painter is not just to capture a likeness, but to understand, understand and manipulate our materials and to make choices on the design of the painting Oops.
0: so everybody can go and try and paint like an old master now we may, may have already and be proficient at. Okay, so that's that's our traditional paints. Now I'm going to make a quick switch to glow-in-the-dark and UV paints, and this is somebody's, some lucky person's bedroom um, with these incredible sort of glow-in-the-dark paint shapes in the back. So at the bottom here, this is a bedroom with the normal lights on, and you can see the paints are kind of purpley. And what's happening is these paints at normal light levels are absorbing the visible and the ultraviolet radiation, so the UV and the visible light. And when you turn the lights off, the purple sort of higher wavelength UV light is being re-emitted as visible light. And therefore, the picture glows. You can find some really amazing and creative examples of painting with fluorescent and uv paints so one word about phosphorescence versus fluorescence phosphorescence is when you absorb the light and it's re-emitted over a longer period of time so phosphorescent paint is paints like the kinds of substances that are in those glow-in-the-dark stars. It just absorbs the regular light, and when the light's turned off, it re-emits over a longer and longer period of time, this visible light, usually as a kind of a green, and that's phosphorescence. Fluorescence is a different process. Fluorescence is when you are having the light coming in and being again absorbed from the visible spectrum, but also from other ranges in the electromagnetic spectrum, like the UV range. And this is why, for instance, fluorescent paint will really light up in black light. That's like a very purple light right at the barrier between visible and UV wavelengths. So what's happening is the visible and UV light come in, they're absorbed, and the reflected color is the UV light being re-emitted as visible, so you get these rich blues and purpley colors. This particular artist is uh, very popular right now, she's, her name is Bogi Fai- Fabian, she's a Hungarian artist and she does commission work and a whole bunch of different things, but her paintings are really spectacular. You can imagine what it would be like to have a room Um, to go to sleep with the walls around you, sort of, unless if you have a black light glowing. So I'll just give you, this is really quick, really quick video. I'll give you this uh, overview of some of her work, except, there you go. Oops, it's the wrong one. I had been looking for a shorter video. But we can look at this one. So you can see she does these amazing spacescapes. And uses UV paints and fluorescent paints with different specific binders, and different additives, and extenders, that's an extender, to make the paint have different properties and to make it better glow. So when you visit her website, she has different kinds of luminosity things. She has prints on canvas. As you can see, you can buy those as wall hangings, um, which are phosphorescent paint. So they absorb the light during the day. And in the absence of a black paint light source, you'll see these beautiful canvas prints kind of glow that greeny phosphorescent color. That's a phosphorescent portrait. And again, natural light, absorbed, and it glows kind of in a, in a blue phosphor when you turn off the lights.
1: Okay.
0: So if you're interested in checking out her site, you can take a look at some of the works she does. But there's a lot of creative potential for these kinds of paints, um, even jewelry, everything, basically. It's just an interesting thing to bring your bedroom walls to a whole new level. Okay, this was the one that I was going to show you. Um, It is extremely short, so I will show it.
3: takes us to the new form of world, even if the lights go down. Every artist has a magic touch in their art. Likewise here is an European artist who has become popular in her unique way of creative expression. She takes us to a fantasy world through her art. She is Oki Fabian who resides in the city of Hungary. She has been passionate towards art since her childhood. She has strengthened her art through victories in contests and competitions. She always loves to conceive a project and then accomplish it with her own hands and also works in different areas of art such as painting, sculpture, interior design, pottery, modeling, furniture design, video, body painting and more. What gets one mesmerized by her art is it glows in the dark and works particularly well with UV lighting. She took a few years to master this technique. She creates dreamful atmospheres, paint walls and floors and also manages to enlighten her art with and without a source of energy. Bogie Fabian states that she creates a unique ambient space so one can experience the art in the daylight as well as in the dark. Of late, she's trying to produce glowing ceramic jewelry and sculptures with strong symbolic connotation to make these ceramic pieces exclusive she uses different techniques and materials to achieve the UV effect Bogie Fabian says that her goal is to create unique spaces and rooms giving them an identity and a soul where relaxing and living becomes an experience she also tried her hand in body painting and received well-deserved attention turns darker space into a dreamy world.
0: So that's quite uh, an expression of understanding color. In fact, to, to understand color and to mix a lot of these paints and to do it in a way such that the glowing is maximized, uh, she does have to understand a little bit of physics, the physics of fluorescence and phosphorescence which we're going to talk about next week. We're going to start now to get away from, so this is sort of more of an art class. We're going to finish up today, the paints, just now. And next week we'll get into working with color with glass. And then we'll also get into bioluminescence and phosphorescence and see some incredible natural examples of glowing creatures and glowing colors which are otherworldly. That's next week. In the meantime, just to get you a question, make sure everybody's awake a bit here. Um, so before modern, and I actually said this, I didn't mean to, but it just slipped out. So before modern cobalt blue, blue paint production in 1802, an equivalent blue painti- pigment existed, was, was seen often in older art as which of the following, glass and pottery or chalk? And the picture is a good clue. It had a transition effect that it was supposed to show up after you answered, but conveniently that decided not to happen. everybody's good. So I'm going to stop this now. And the answer is yes. Glass and pottery. This is the cobalt blue glass I was talking about earlier. It's a very dark blue, almost purpley kind of blue color. And here's an example of some cobalt blue glasswork. So now this brings us to sort of getting to closing off, so we're going to talk next week specifically about color in glass, and one famous glass artist is Dale Chihuly, and we'll talk about his works. So what you see here, and I'm kind of standing in shadow in front of this beautiful glass work, just to give you an idea of the scale. This is the Dale Chihuly Glass Museum in Seattle, and this piece is absolutely massive. It is like seven feet, well, well, 15, more like 15 feet tall, and contains hundreds of pieces of individual blue glass and clear glass. It's called Seascape, and it is just to actually see it, it makes no, it doesn't give you that impact in the picture, but to be there and to see it is really striking. So this is some of the glass he uses in here, it's cobalt blue glass. And over the years, it's been like 40 years that Dale Chihuly's been a glass artist, so he's basically perfected these techniques and has a gigantic team of like basically hundreds of people working for him, producing these glasses. So next time we'll see how exactly he does this and what kinds of colors he puts in his paint, uh, sorry, in his glass. Just to talk about this, the cobalt blue paint pigment we talked about, which was invented in 1802, was a different kind of thing than the co- was cobalt oxide with aluminum, whereas cobalt blue glass is a slightly different molecular compound. It's potassium cobalt silicate. And you can see a nice example there. So to close off, I'll just show you a brief video of Dale Ch- some of Dale Chihuly's work, and we'll follow up with this next time, next week.
4: I've been working with Glass now for 40 years and uh, of course the work started small and, uh, and it got larger and larger and then at a certain point the pieces were just big enough you know they came hard to handle if they were any bigger and, and around that same time I, I started doing architectural installations. I have a degree in interior design and architecture and so I was very comfortable working in the spaces. Even my smaller objects you know, often kind of, I think of them as as architectural because you'll have one part inside another. It was a very smooth transition to, you know, the installation started small, and then uh, as we learned how to put things together, uh, we quit making the parts big, and then we went back to making the parts small. So it's it's massing all that color together. When you look at the sun, and there's a thousand or more parts in it, and there's that much yellow, and the sun is coming through it. You know, our artificial light is going through it. it, just, uh, you know, it it's, it's just, you know, it's just a massive amount of yellow color and it's this big, simple form. It just has a lot of power when you, when you see it in that way. So it was a, a natural thing for, for me to, to, you know, to go from the smaller works to the larger works. You know, I couldn't do one-tenth what I'm doing if I didn't have a big team so the complexity of the big shows takes a great team of people and I've been very fortunate to over the years build that team you know maybe I got a little bit of that organizational ability from my dad the butcher that was a union organizer I don't know what but I got very fortunate in being able to work with great people I woke up one morning and said that I wanted to hang chandeliers over the canals of Venice. And then from that came the concept of working in different countries, making the chandeliers and taking them to Venice. The first country was Finland, the second was Ireland, the third was Mexico. It gave me an opportunity to, to build the chandeliers or make installations. And then right outside, I, there were woods or rivers yes. to work in. I'd always worked outside to some degree, but since 1995, it's become a, a more important part of my work. You take that idea, you make the decision to go with it, and go down that road, and you see what happens, and you know, sometimes it doesn't work. Most of the time I've been fortunate that, that a, lot of, a lot of the projects have worked, or ideas have worked.
0: So that is some of the work of Dale Chihuly, and then these are some of the pictures I took in the Seattle Art and Glass Museum, the Chihuly Museum. Uh, One room is just this absolutely massive, it's probably a little larger than this room from wall to wall but this is on kind of this black oval podium, but it's just a series of glass, it's called a seascape, and the colors, it's every color imaginable, and the way that the light reflects is absolutely incredible. So more use of color, more use of light, we'll talk about Chihuly next time. It's Interesting, he puts a lot of his stuff outside as well, so you get the natural light. So if you do get a chance to visit Seattle or anywhere else where they have a Chihuly exhibit, please go see it can't stress enough the the grandeur that it brings to you when you actually see it in person and that's about it so have a good weekend see you next week